Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Warren Buffett famously said that only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. That's to say that leverage can boost your investment returns in good times and amplify your losses when the market turns against you. Today, we look at the different types of leverage investments and how to employ them. I want to know if it ever makes sense to use leverage in a long-term portfolio and how to ensure we're swimming in the appropriate attire. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask if your broker sells your stocks in a margin call, can you be left owing more money than you invested? Okay, let's get into it. So leverage means borrowing money to invest. And Romin, what could be better than borrowing someone else's money, compounding it for 20 years and sailing off to the Bahamas? What could go wrong? <laughs> a lot can go wrong. I think a lot of it is just the kind of psychological scar of losing money temporarily. And I think one of the big things people underappreciate is how difficult it is to stick with the plan. Just buying equity and holding it is really hard. Buying leveraged equity and holding it is doubly hard or three times as hard. So all of the cognitive biases that you get when you're actually holding something which is crashy just get multiplied up. And if you're someone who's of a nervous disposition, such as myself, then you're not going to sleep well at night if you've got something which potentially looks like it's lost almost all of its value. That's the fundamental problem with leverage, in my opinion. So to put it simply, the potential benefits of leverage are you amplify your gains, right, in a rising market. And equity always rises over the long term, if you're talking about, you know, 20, 30 years. So that's the way it works, right? So let's say that equity on average rises by 6%. If you get a multiple of that, so you borrow money to invest money, you can amplify that gain. Presumably, so long as your borrowing costs are lower than the gain you're making. <laughs> oh, there are many provisos. <laughs> okay, we'll get into them. We'll go through all the different things. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. I mean, obviously, borrowing cost is a big deal. And, of course, if you're somebody that lends money to people to do this kind of exercise in fear, then, you know, it's very profitable because often those lending rates are very high, even though they're collateralized. So let's just specify what we mean by that. Collateralized lending is when you borrow money, but you pledge some asset to somebody, which effectively means that if you don't pay them back, they can confiscate that asset and sell it. It reduces their risk to you. So with a mortgage, the collateralized asset would be your house? Yes. I think the thing with leverage is I only really hear about it and people taking it on when things are euphoric, which is presumably the exact time you're not meant to be taking on additional risk. Well, I think the difficulty is sticking with it. But generally, people do take on leverage when markets are soaring upwards, as you say. And the reason is obvious because of FOMO. You know, you've got fear of missing out. You look at your portfolio and say, look, I've gained 100% over the last five years. If only I'd have taken out leverage, I'd have got, you know, multiples of that. So that's what I'm going to do right now. And of course, you're probably well into the rally by that point. People get greedy and they take out too much leverage. Yeah, and this is exactly what you shouldn't do. If you are going to use leverage, then do it tactically and do it in a controlled way. And just be prepared for the risks, because I think people just aren't prepared for what could happen. 
Do you remember that story a few years ago where there was a family of bears? I think it was in Canada. And they broke into a chocolate factory, which was on the edge of their woods. And they ate so much chocolate that they all died. Now, Roman, they obviously died <laughs> heroes. Let's, let's, let's get that right up front. But the moral of that story is chocolate is tasty and leverage is tasty. But if you eat too much of it, when it comes to a bear market, you will die. Oh, I like that. You got the bears in along with the kind of toxic aspect of leverage. Yeah. I like that. So I guess one of the most straightforward to understand instruments in terms of leverage is a margin loan from your broker. Yeah, that's what people may have with some brokers. But of course, this is not something which most people need. So I should say at the outset here that really you don't need margin in order to invest. But the idea is that you can amplify your gains and losses by being loaned money to buy stocks. So let's say you want to buy, I don't know, $100,000 worth of Apple. What could happen is you could buy it on margin, in which case your broker gives you half of the money towards that purchase. So you only have to put up, say, $50,000 worth, and then your broker will chip in the other $50,000. You'll have to pay for that margin. You'll have to pay some interest rate. So what you've effectively done is doubled your returns with your quite small initial investment. Now, the Federal Reserve does impose certain restrictions in the United States on how much margin you can have. It's called Regulation T, and that's limited to 50%. So you can only double your gains and losses using initial margin. So there are two types of margin. There's initial margin. That's how much you have to put up on day one. And then there's something called maintenance margin, which is the amount that you have to pay to the broker just to keep your books in line. So this is where the concept of a margin call comes in, right? If you dip below that maintenance margin. Yeah, and the maintenance margin constraint is 25%. So at this point, the leverage can be, in theory, higher. So let's say that you've got 10 grand worth of equity in your margin account, then you have to have a minimum margin amount of 2,500. Really, if, if a market's more volatile, usually the margin requirements get more stringent. Because if you think of it from the broker's point of view, let's say there's a huge intraday move, then your client could get wiped out and end up owing you a lot of money and not be able to pay you back. So what you need to do is when markets are very volatile, you'll make it more strict in terms of how much margins required and you reduce the amount of leverage they can have. Now, what everyone fears is what's called a margin call. And so the idea here is that you get a very polite message from your broker saying you've got to pay margin on this asset, which has fallen in value by more than your margin amount. And then you've got two choices. You can either liquidate your position, sell the assets in order to pay back the margin, or you can just stump up the cash and put more margin into the account. But of course, in a falling market, this is like feeding cash into a furnace. You know, you just see your, your cash just yeah. being eaten up by these margin calls. I mean, you say you've got a choice. Sometimes you don't have a choice, right? If you don't respond to the margin call or you can't respond, they will just liquidate your assets. Yeah, that's the way it works. And of course, it has to work that way from the point of view of the broker. Otherwise, they could be wiped out. They are taking a risk lending you that money. I mean, it's a kind of toxic dynamic in a way, isn't it? Because you might be forced to sell when your shares have fallen in value, which is kind of the last thing you really want to do. And this is the problem with this form of leverage, I think, which is that people don't appreciate how painful it can be to go through the process of all the margin calls and maintaining the account. And yet if you do do that, then, you know, it could be worth it in the long run. 
But the problem is that people don't size the trades appropriately. So maybe they take on too much leverage and they do that during a rising market and they don't appreciate what could happen if things start to fall, which inevitably they do. And it can change, become toxic very, very quickly. Yeah, we saw that this year, right? 2022. Everything was great until November of last year. And then suddenly everything started to fall. I mean, there is a movie called Margin Call. It's a pretty good movie and it stars Kevin Spacey. And that became toxic overnight <laughs> with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> oh, very meta. <laughs> but look, I think the thing is that most people don't need leverage. And for most people, this is just the kind of roller coaster that is really inappropriate, I think. No, I agree. And I think what you said was right that owning stocks, especially a concentrated portfolio of stocks, is nerve jangling enough that taking on a margin loan would just make me feel completely out of control, right? I'm no longer in control of when I'm selling. And also, I think it kind of goes against the Teddy strategy, which is do nothing most of the time. I think a portfolio shouldn't intrude on your life. It should be like an operating system. You know, if an operating system is good, you're never aware it's there. And I think for many people, that's what they want in their investments. They just want something which they can just put money into it. And at a certain point in their life, it will allow them to achieve their goals. Yeah. I think if I had to compare margin loans to an operating system, it would be Windows Vista just crashing all the time. (laughs) God damn, I hated that one. Yeah. So I think that as long as it's not intrusive, the investment strategy works for most people. But margin calls are something which you have to worry about and something which you have to act on very quickly and have the cash ready to do that and set aside for that. So you have to plan how much you need to have in terms of margin. You need to think about how volatile the things you invest in really are and then you know work out how much margin you're going to need in a rough period. And those inevitably come. And I think I'm right in saying that margin loans and margin calls were a big factor in the 1929 stock market crash, where people had borrowed a huge amount of money to invest. I mean, regular people just on the street had borrowed a huge amount of money to invest in US stocks. And it built up this huge rally. And then it all turned around and people were, you know, selling their cars to pay their debts and jumping out of windows. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think it's hard to underestimate the amount of psychological damage that that crisis had. And in many cases, like you say, it caused people to take their lives. I just think that that shows that there was something wrong with the system at that point. And a lot of the legislation that we see today came out of crises like that, which aims to stop people having too much leverage. And the whole kind of margining system is in order to stop you building up too much of a loss at any point in time. Are financial crashes pretty much always due to leverage somewhere in the system? Not always, but they're certainly exacerbated by leverage because what happens is if markets go into a downturn, then you get this kind of spiral under which people have to close out their margin position. If they have to liquidate, some of them do, then that increases the selling pressure. So if you're selling into the downturn, then it amplifies the moves. So it is a destabilizing force if there is a lot of leverage. For example, in cryptocurrency, a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now are due to leverage. With Three Arrows Capital, for example, they had very large positions in cryptocurrency which were leveraged, and that was fine while markets were moving up. But of course, once markets reversed, they had to liquidate those positions. And this has taken out other platforms, which lent them the money. So that's why you get this kind of chain reaction effect if there isn't some kind of control on leverage. So if there is no regulation, you do get these cascade of failures with interlinked counterparties. That's the risk. And I know that when you look at the financial stability report from the Fed, they report on the level of leverage at brokers in the United States. And I think it's 
quite low now compared to historical standards. Yeah, I mean, all of the central bank financial stability reports, the Fed has got its own, the Bank of England's got one, European Central Bank has got one, then you'll see that most central bankers are terrified of leverage because most of the big crises in the past have been essentially accelerated, or at least I think of leverage like an accelerant during a crisis, you know, it just kind of makes everything go up in flames really quickly. So they're really sensitive to pockets of leverage. So for example, they talk in the Fed's financial stability report about hedge fund leverage, and they talk about leverage at brokerage accounts. That shows how many people are taking leverage to buy equity, for example. And the pockets of leverage you see right now, for example, are the leveraged loan market in the US, which is kind of slightly dodgy, well, very dodgy credits, <laughs> companies which are very poorly rated, which have to take out loans. And that market's grown huge, very rapidly, much faster than GDP. And so the Fed's very aware of it. And that might be a problem point, you know, in the months ahead. Because companies, of course, have leverage. And this is something people don't appreciate. When you buy a company, if you look at its balance sheet, you'll see the equity part and you'll see retained cash. And then you'll also see its liabilities, its bonds, which it's issued. And those multiply the returns. And that's why equity over the long term sometimes does very well, because there is some leverage on the balance sheet. It's something you have to monitor. But, you know, just a normal equity account will be leveraged because of the individual equities which are leveraged. That's really interesting because I've heard people talk about the gearing ratio. You can do it for individual companies, but also investment trusts have gearing often. So I know that Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which is very popular with UK investors, has, I think, around 13% gearing. Yeah, so Scottish Mortgage, like you say, has gearing. It's currently around 16%. And it has a maximum cap of gearing of around 17%. Now, what you'll see in terms of the returns for Scottish mortgage is that they'll be very large relative to what the market's doing. And that's partially because of the nature of the stocks it buys, growthy stocks, but also because of this leverage. Now, the actual management fee that you see for the fund don't include the leverage costs because they have to borrow in financial markets in order to create that leverage. So I think it's important when we're looking at investments to understand what kind of internal leverage there might be built in, because otherwise you might end up levering up already leveraged things and your volatility will just be crazy. <laughs> and of course, the time when you really discover about leverage is when markets do go into reverse. You know, you don't want a nasty surprise. That's the last thing you need in that kind of crisis. I mean, there are other ways that investors access leverage. It's not just margin loans. I think increasingly leveraged ETFs have become popular, where you might buy, say, two or three times the S&P 500, say. Yeah, now, in theory, this isn't a bad thing, right? Because if you buy one of these three times leveraged daily ETFs, the way this works is that inside the ETF will be some derivatives, usually call options, and these will effectively multiply up your returns on a daily basis. So let's say that the S&P goes up by 1%, a three times daily levered ETF will go up by 3%. And if the S&P goes down 1%, yours will go down 3%. But it's a daily leverage which gets applied. So it's based on the closing price on that day. It doesn't give you three times a long-term return. That's what people fail to understand often. So it will vary significantly versus, you know, if you were actually able to buy the index three times. Yeah. So let's just imagine a crazy environment in which stocks simply went up 5% and down 5% every day forever. Okay, that seems like what we're doing right now. 
<laughs> it is kind of. I mean, if you have a kind of uh, range-bound market, which is very volatile, that's effectively what you've got. What happens with these funds is that they kind of leak return over that period because a 5% gain and a 5% loss don't get you back to where you started. And the bigger the rise and fall, as it oscillates, the bigger the leakage because you have to rise by more than you fall because of the way percentages work. But the good thing about these leverage ETFs as opposed to margin is that you never lose more than you initially want to invest. So let's say you put in 100, the most that you'll ever lose with this leverage ETF is 100. Yeah. And that can happen. With these nickel ETFs, there was a three times daily long nickel ETF. Who's buying that? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> three times daily levered long nickel. And the three times daily levered short nickel. So guess what happened? Nickel markets moved by more than 33% in a day. And yeah, they were both wiped out. So effectively, the funds had to be shut down because the loss was 100%. I mean, I'm not sure that could happen on the S&P 500 sakes. I think the market shuts after a certain daily fall. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Not for a diversified global index. But you can lose a huge amount, can't you? If yeah. If you're three times daily levered. And this was my point. I actually did a video about leverage. And yes, it's true that if you look at the S&P 500 long term, and you're willing to stick with it, then yeah, leverage makes sense. You'd have done really well. But the drawdown for levered funds, three times daily levered, for example, would have been catastrophically bad. So the worst period, of course, would have been this double crisis between 2000 and 2007. You know, we initially had the dot-com bubble bursting, then we had the global financial crisis. And during that period, the drawdown on a three times levered fund, although they didn't exist at the time, but if you backtest it, the drawdown would have been 97.7%. But of course, now it's ahead of where you would have been by just buying the S&P 500 relative to that starting point. Man, if you could buy it when it was down that 97% and hold it till now, we would be in the Bahamas. One of the things in my fund portfolio would be a three times levered fund. But, you know, I'll only buy it if there's absolute despair in markets. I doubt we'll even get there this time around. But it's only something to consider. I mean, the thing is, the costs of those funds are relatively high and they are high risk, let's like say highly volatile. And because of the variance they have from the underlying index, like you said, to me, they don't really sound like they should be long term investments. They sound kind of like short term speculative things. And that's what they say in the fact sheet. This is not suitable for long term holding. But in fact, it works pretty well if you hold it over the long term, <laughs> right. if you can psychologically hold it over the long term. So, for example, if you look at the Wisdom Tree S&P three times daily levered fund, that's got a management fee of 0.75%. So that's going to be pretty big over the long term. Yeah. And as we've discussed before, those fees do compound. And it's, you know, many multiples higher than just buying the normal bog standard S&P 500. And you've got the roller coaster of having to accept 97.7% losses now and then. Yeah, but do you think there's a catastrophic scenario where, yeah, it falls 97% and you think, okay, that's bad enough. But then the assets under management have shrunk so much, the fund is unprofitable for Wisdom Tree or whoever's running it. They shut the fund at the very time you're going to now want to ride the, uh, the bull market. Yeah, it's possible. And that would be catastrophic. So I think, you know, there are risks, terrible risks with some of these strategies. But if you do buy it at the bottom of the market or close to the bottom, then that's less likely to happen, I'd say. But, you know, you just don't know. Okay, so we've talked about margin loans, we've talked about leveraged ETFs, and I think the third major way that retail investors are accessing leverage is through options and other kinds of derivatives. 
And I believe the scale of that went up massively in the pandemic, especially in the US. Yeah, because we had lots of TikTok accounts where people were talking about buying call options on, for example, Tesla, which made people millionaires overnight. And of course, if people see that, they think, I'd like to try that. You don't think that, Robin. You look at it and think, oh, this is going to end in tears. (laughs) (laughs) How did you guess? (laughs) But the idea with an option, with a call option, is quite elegant. The idea is that, you know, if you buy a stock, you're buying the upside and the downside. Well, wouldn't it be nice just to buy the upside? Yeah, that'd be really great. <laughs> so, so the way this works is you say, OK, well, I'll just buy any kind of upside above a certain price. Now, of course, you can only win with this strategy. So you have to pay something up front, which kind of offsets that always winning vibe. So the way this works is you pay some kind of premium, which is based on some fancy formula called Black-Scholes. But the idea is that let's say you want to buy a stock which is currently trading at 100 But you say, well, what I'm going to do is buy an option to buy it at 110. Now, that's called an out-of-the-money option. It'll only be valuable if the actual price at expiry of the option was more than 110. You'd be crazy to buy it at 110 if it was trading at, say, 105. Then your option would be worthless. Yeah. But if at expiry, it's actually trading at, say, 150, and you can buy it for 110. Woohoo! Quids in. Yeah. So you, you buy it for 110, you get the stock, you can immediately sell it for 150, and you've made a huge profit. And the beauty of it is that the premium that you paid, because it was an out-of-the-money option, would be significantly less than buying the stock at 100. So maybe it would be just 10% of that or 5% of that. So that's where the leverage comes in. If you buy an out-of-the-money call option, then you'd pay very little for it. So it's kind of like a leveraged bet. It sounds a lot like gambling to me. It often exercises into multiples of the stock as well, you know, like 100 stocks. So there's that to consider as well. But but yeah, I mean, it is like gambling in the sense that it's very likely you'll lose 100% of that very small investment. Now, professionals, if they're going to risk manage this, will have a whole options book and they'll kind of have hedges in order to minimise their losses. So they'll have a very firm handle on how much they could potentially lose. But if you're just kind of doing a FOMO trade, you know, or a YOLO trade where you only live once, where you say, OK, well, I'm going to take my entire life savings and pile it into GameStop, into GameStop options. Yeah, and that's what happened, right? And that's part of the reason it drove this huge meme stock frenzy. If you do that, there's a very high likelihood that those options would expire out of the money and be worthless. So you'll lose 100% of your investment. So I'd say leverage is okay in the form of options or these leverage funds, as long as you risk manage it, as long as it's a small proportion of your total capital. And there's another strategy which is kind of interesting, which is called return layering, where let's say that you're going to buy, I don't know, £100,000 worth of stocks. Another alternative is to buy a three times levered £30,000 worth of stocks. And then the rest you'd invest in really safe stuff that generates an income. So what you end up with is effectively the same exposure with a little bit of income with something really boring laid on top. And they call that return layering. And, you know, it's been around for a long time, that principle. But people don't do that. They go down the YOLO route and they just pile everything into the risky levered bet, which is really suicidal risk. So that's buying call options. And I've heard of this distinction between a naked call and a covered call. Could you (laughs) explain that for us? So this is to do with options writing or selling options. 
What we just talked about was buying an option, an option to buy something at a fixed price at a fixed point in time. You can also sell an option where you sell someone else the right to buy stocks from you at a fixed price at a fixed point in the future. Oh man, I'm never going to do that. Never come to me to buy stocks. <laughs> well, the reason why you do it would be to generate an income, a premium. And that's why people do it. And it seems like free money until you get assigned on the call. So in our example, if the price did rise above 110, then your counterparty would say, oh yes, please, I'd love to buy Apple stock at 110. So now I've got to go and buy the stock in the market. A very large quantity of it, and you'll make an initial loss unless you have the stocks in the first place. So what you'll end up having is to sell your stock holding if it's a covered call at a certain price, which is below market price, which isn't great, but at least it's not disastrous. And of course, the downside, if you've got a naked call position, short call position, is unlimited. Because if you actually draw the payoff, what you've got is a fixed income below the strike price, which is the premium you're paid. But then that very rapidly gets eaten up if the price of the stock goes above the strike price. And then you've got unlimited downside above the strike price. So basically it means you'll have to buy the stock at whatever price it's trading at. Yeah, if, if you haven't got the stock already, then you have to buy the stock at whatever price it's trading at. And you know they'll be able to buy it from you at that strike price. So that's a naked call, the dangerous one. Yeah, so that's a dangerous one if you have a naked call position, a short call position. And this was popular in the 80s. Many people were doing this trade. So naked call options, to me, if we go back to Warren Buffett's parable of swimming naked, this isn't swimming naked, this is surfing naked. You're just <laughs> riding the waves. The other description I've heard is picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. You know, it works for a while, but then, you know, eventually you could get wiped out. So in terms of retail investors and using leverage, we've kind of highlighted a lot of the risks and there is that risk of catastrophic loss if you get it wrong, if you time the market badly, or if things move against you. But there is an academic paper that, you know, is referenced quite a lot, which is around life cycle investing and how perhaps it makes sense to take on some leverage while you're young. Yeah, and I think it's actually true in the sense that equity does go up over time. And if you do get wiped out when you're young, you can at least have time to recover. Whereas if you do this late in your life, that's going to be a problem, right? But the fundamental problem with investment is that when you're young is when you should have all of your wealth to invest, because then it would compound for as long as possible and you'd get much bigger returns. The problem is that we start poor. Yeah. So we have very little in terms of money to invest initially. So how can you get around that? Well, what you can do is use leverage early on. And then what you can effectively do is compound for a much longer period of time and effectively reduce the amount of risk you take over the long term. In the paper, they call it diversification across time, because we're always trying to diversify across asset classes and across different equities, but we don't diversify across time. Now, it blows my mind when I read that, that, you know, you kind of want to, like you say, access your entire life wealth early on. So in the paper, there's this quote, which I like, which says, the insight behind our prescription comes from the central lesson in finance, the value of diversification. Investors use mutual funds to diversify over stocks and over geographies. What is missing is diversification over time. The problem for most investors is that they have too much invested late in life and not enough early on. Yeah, I think that kind of captures the initial wealth problem. And it's interesting, there's this mathematical result that shows that you should maintain a constant percentage of your wealth in equities. But the twist with this 
temporarily diversified strategy. It sounds like Doctor Who, doesn't it? Temporal (laughs) diversification. But the idea is that what you actually have as a constant percentage in equities is a proportion of your future wealth. Now, that has to be discounted back in time. But effectively, what that means is that you start off with a leveraged position and then gradually reduce the leverage over time. And they did all of the back tests in this paper, which is just a beautiful paper. It's called Life Cycle Investing and Leverage. Buying stock on margin can reduce retirement risk. And it's by Ayers and Nailbuff. I think I'm pronounced that right. I should say for everyone that this is the 50th take of Colin <laughs> trying to say Nailbuff. <laughs> <laughs> How else would you pronounce it? Nailbuff? Uh, I'm not sure. But it was actually written in 2008, which was very brave at the time, given what was going on at the time. But they actually show with these back tests that the strategy worked very well compared to a strategy of just buying equity and holding it or having some kind of life target type approach where you start off with 90% equity, dial it down to 50% equity. I mean, if you think about it, this is exactly what everyone does with real estate, right? We put down 10% or whatever it might be early in our lives and we lever it up to buy a property that we couldn't afford and we hold it for our entire lives. This is just applying that principle, but to stocks. Yeah, it is exactly the same. But the danger is that you get margin called. But they actually look at the risk of that in the simulations which they do. And they show that it would have been very unusual if you have a diversified portfolio to get completely wiped out at any point. And in fact, I don't think in any of their back tests did that happen. But the critical assumption here, which makes it all work, is that the rate of borrowing, so that's your margin borrowing interest rate, if you like, that's less than the premium you get on equity. So what they showed was that historically, equities have returned about 9.1% since 1871, in nominal terms, 6.8%. I think it's a little bit less now, 6.6% real, if you adjust for inflation. And the cost of margin was 5%. So there was a 4% premium between the two. So if you do take leverage, then it's worthwhile. Now, what they point out is that that might not be true in future. So people launching into their kind of investment career right now might not see returns of 9% nominal, 6% real for the next 30 years. So it's a big gamble. It is. It really depends on what kind of margin rates you can get. And like you say, the difference when you compare it to, you know, taking a mortgage to buy a house is that your house isn't marked to market in the way that your equity portfolio would be. So you're not going to get margin called on your house, but you might get margin called on your stock holdings. Yeah. The beauty of house price volatility is it's never seen. You know, it's like private equity in the sense that, oh, it's not there because I I can't see it. You only know what it's worth when you actually sell the place. All you can do is compare it to similar properties. And I think a lot of people prefer houses because you can sort of show it off to your friends, right? It's just you don't really show off your stock portfolio. No one's going to be impressed by that. Well, we will be. Me and Roman will be impressed, but no one else. (laughs) You can't live in your stock portfolio. No. It doesn't keep you warm in winter and slightly cool in summer. So it's interesting, like we've said it might make sense. That academic paper shows that, you know, maybe it does make sense from a mathematical point of view, but we don't all live by optimal maths, right? No, and one of the things they actually tweaked in the paper was something called the utility function. Now that tells you how much people hate losses. And you can kind of tweak this variable and say, okay, I hate risk or I don't find risk to be too much of a problem. And for reasonable limits on this utility function, they showed that this strategy would work. But I think what it doesn't take into account is the conversations around the kitchen table where you say, yes, we've just lost 97% of our life savings at this point. Now, I think that would be a very difficult conversation to have. 
particularly if you do get margin call, depending on how you get leverage. But if it was based on margin, how would you explain to your partner that we're feeding money into this furnace of losses? Yeah, because it seems like you're throwing good money after bad, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, who'd be comfortable doing that if, you know, you're just starting out in life? Yeah, you can't go to your partner, remember what Nailbuff said. <laughs> Yeah, and and the people are emotional when it comes to wealth because, you know, it's our life savings, it's our future, effectively, that's going up in flames, or it seems to be. So having faith in the maths during that kind of crisis, I think, would be very difficult for many people. So, like you say, even though theoretically it works, in practice, I just don't think we're geared up psychologically for that kind of risk. No, I agree, and I don't think I would ever take leverage and if i was it would be in my fund portfolio as some kind of tactical play with the leveraged etf like this year you know i've got to say i was tempted earlier in the year to take a sort of two or three times levered short bet on the market because it did look bubbly and i thought oh why not but then you know i didn't but we always misremember these things you know i always think that's why it was a really good idea to keep these investment journals yeah because you think oh yeah i would have shorted the market then and in practice you didn't quite time it right so. no and i probably think it every year and this is the year i've remembered that that's I right it. that's right you kind of you kind of enforce it because it would have been right so yeah i think for most people being short doesn't make sense short the market and being levered at least you know like three times leverage i think is excessive and in this paper, they say that you should have two to one leverage. That's plenty for their goals. Now, there was something that was on the Bogleheads forum, and this was quite popular about, oh, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, where someone was saying, well, look, I've got a three times levered equity fund, but it's fine because I've also got this three times levered treasury fund. Now, of course, if you look at the returns so far this year, the three times levered equity fund is down by about 50%. And the three times levered treasury fund is probably down by a little bit more. So, you know, I don't think that strategy would look great right now. So that strategy, as I understand it, was basically reconstructing a 60-40 portfolio, the classic blend, but then levering it up three times and saying, I'm going to get huge returns with little volatility over the long term. Yeah. So you take something diversified, safe and lever it up. I mean, that's something that hedge funds have been doing for years. And you can just look at the long trail of blown up hedge funds to see that, you know, it sounds good in theory, but in practice, leverage usually ends up being toxic in some way. And you always get these kind of black swans like we've perhaps had this year, which disprove your theory and can take you pretty close to zero. Yeah, it's usually a mathematician who's naive who comes into these things thinking, I can analyse this, I can backtest it. But like you say, something new comes along, like the invasion of Ukraine or some other crisis, and it just blows up your theory. So, you know, I just don't think it's worth a risk when most people don't even need it. And as usual, Buffett sums it up really nicely. It's insane to risk what you have and need for something you don't really need. If you want to learn more about using leverage in your investments or avoiding it, then why not join our community? You can find out more by going to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners in Poland, Mikal, who asks, what happens if your broker is forced to sell the stocks you bought on margin and there is not enough liquidity in the market? Does that potentially leave you with a negative balance? And are they going to then chase you for this debt you owe them? Well, it depends on where you're based. Certainly in the EU, there is something called margin closeout protection and negative balance protection. If you invest in something called CFDs, 
contracts for difference, which is kind of like options. That's right. But the idea here is that if you are forced to close out these positions, you'll never have to pay that negative balance as long as you've played by the rules with margin. So if you do get a margin call, of course, you have to pay it. But if there is a huge market move such that you do get a huge negative position, then it'll be closed out and it'll be at the cost of the brokerage. So, of course, that'll make them tighten up on leverage. So indirectly, I think this is a kind of cool rule because it forces them to not allow people to take too much leverage. So I think the EU brought these new rules in quite recently, actually, in 2018. And it was driven by a bad experience, I think, where a lot of people ended up with a negative balance, which is when the euro and the Swiss franc had a bit of a sudden jarring move against each other. I remember that. It was biblical. It was actually January the 15th, 2015. Now, the Swiss National Bank is in charge of a currency, which is like one of the world's safe havens. You know, everyone rushes into the Swissy when things are going bad. And the Swiss don't like it because they are an exporting country. And so what they do is they actually try to stop their currency strengthening too much. And in 2015, the Swiss franc was gradually strengthening versus the euro. And they actually imposed a cap. They said, look, beyond this point, it will not go, right? And then guess what happened? (laughs) (laughs) The cap broke. The cap broke. And then it wasn't an official cap. It was just kind of like a sort of weak promise. Soft cap. A soft cap, (laughs) And of course, it it crashed. And there was just a huge intraday move, 17%, which for a developed market currency pair is just unthinkable. And of course, all of these people who had the wrong way position were stood to lose very large amounts of money because many of these positions were levered because they believed what the Swiss National Bank had said. Now, there were actually lawsuits, I think, in some cases where people were saying, look, I had a stop loss. And when you filled my trade, you didn't hit that stop loss. And the broker said, well, I couldn't because the market moved too quickly. Yeah. Well, if you read the um, small print for stop losses, it almost always says, we'll do our best. But if we can't, <laughs> if we can't stop you losing money, you owe us the money. Like at least before all this negative balance protection stuff came in. Yeah. And that's why we need this legislation, because if we do let people have a lot of leverage, ultimately people are going to hurt themselves. You know, I think it's actually a good idea to have these kind of rules. But as far as I know, in the US, there isn't such a protection. No. And in much of the world, you know, this is a very recent move in the EU. I don't know if it applies in the UK now that we're not part of the EU. Yeah, it does still, I believe, for contracts for difference. So I think if you are concerned about that, the thing to look at is, does your broker offer negative balance protection and who's regulating it? Yeah, because you don't want to find out about these things in retrospect, because if you are taking big positions, then, you know, you could get so damaged financially. So, for example, the broker eToro, which I know is popular across Europe, on their website, they say, on rare occasions, market conditions could cause your equity to become negative. In these cases, eToro will perform a margin call. We will close all your open trades. As part of our policy of negative balance protection, we will then absorb the loss and reset your equity to zero. Now, they make it sound like this is something they're doing out of the goodwill of their heart, but I think it's been forced (laughs) upon them by the EU. Um, But yeah, just check what your broker actually does in those situations, because they will have a policy on it. Yeah, just like the warning at the top of their website that says more than 70% of our customers lose money with CFDs. They don't do that because they want to. No, why would you say that this is a gambling parlour and we're the, we're the house making the profit? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. 
Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.